Just because Congress is on recess, natural disasters don't stop. Now FEMA is running out of money, thanks in part to that fire in Maui. Just add it to the pile of Hill urgent issues. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And tell us more about the FEMA situation. They need money. It can only come from Congress. So what's the situation there, Mitchell? Right. Well, this was even before the disaster on the island of Maui that the FEMA director, Leanne Criswell, was telling Congress that FEMA could run out of money. And this was earlier in the summer. And that was before Maui happened, before the heavy storms in Southern California. And who knows what's going to happen throughout the hurricane season. So this is a situation that she has been uh, sending up the flare on. And really, Congress has to come up with some money to do this. The president has proposed $12 billion in disaster aid. And we'll see where that goes. Even before that was proposed, Florida Senator Marco Rubio had sought disaster aid in a separate measure. But it does seem like it's going to have to be folded into some larger legislation. But, you know, you look at the type of situation that FEMA has been dealing with in the last decade or so. Chriswell told Congress earlier this summer that FEMA in 2010 had about 100 declared disasters to support. Now, more than a decade later, that number has tripled. So they are dealing with natural disasters almost throughout the entire year, whereas before they kind of knew that certain months were going to be heavier and obviously the hurricane season is huge. So I think there will be support as there always is for disaster aid within Congress, but they're going to have to move around a lot of funding. FEMA does have a little bit more flexibility than a lot of federal agencies have. So we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks when lawmakers get back. Yeah. So basically they're dealing with almost an average of a disaster a day. Yeah, and they're huge. Let's not forget that it was just a year ago that in Florida, that disaster with the hurricane caused more than $100 billion in damage. And while the damage has been extensive from the wildfires in Maui, that is dwarfed by what happened just a year ago. And then, as you mentioned, they're just rolling disasters one right after the other. And it really has a change for FEMA in how they respond to everything because they're dealing with something all the time. Yeah. And meanwhile, as we sit here, it's still, you know, another week until Labor Day, but they're not back until well after Labor Day. Right. And everything is just growing in terms of all these to-do things that the lawmakers have to get to. I mean, before they left, they still had 12 appropriation bills to get through. Now, they did get through them through all the committees in the House and the Senate, but the House only passed one bill. So even before they broke for the summer, there was a tentative agreement that we've learned about recently that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer essentially said to each other, look, we know that there's just not going to be enough time with the House not even getting back until the 12th, much less the 5th, when the Senate gets back. So they are looking at another continuing resolution, some type of stopgap spending bill. But as you would expect, a lot of members of the House Freedom Caucus and conservatives are saying that they don't want this kind of agreement. And some of them are even saying that they don't have a problem with possibly going to a shutdown. So we'll see what happens in regard to that. But it is very possible still that we could have at least a short government shutdown next month if they can't get an agreement within the House. And over the years, we've seen that when there is a, I hate to call it a shutdown because the FAA air traffic controllers keep working, law enforcement keeps working. Right. I mean, they shut the parks because, you know, that inflicts pain on the public. I think it's kind of a political statement when they do that. Our dear late friend Mike Causey used to call that close the Washington Monument syndrome. (laughs) But the fact is that a lot of the essential government operations don't cease And so it's mostly what the public does not see, people planning budgets, people planning new policies and regulations, that stops. 
Yeah, and I think if we do get a CR passed eventually, if there is some type of partial government shutdown, I don't think it would be that long. They would probably get a CR that would go into early December. They want to avoid that big omnibus at the end of the year because don't forget, if they fail to pass a budget by the end of December this year, then when the new year starts, the new calendar year starts, the automatic 1% spending cuts will go into effect at the start of 2024. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and somehow the shutdown of the CR and the general lurching nature of the way Congress manages the government seems to tie in with the idea of retention of the federal workforce, because they get tired of this kind of thing, because uh, they're trying to do their jobs, and the people that enable it aren't doing their jobs. And this came up in the IRS context. Right. And this is especially significant when you consider that the IRS is going to need to hire more than 25,000 non-IT employees this fiscal year alone. So they are trying to really ramp up the hiring and the retention at the IRS, as a lot of other agencies are also dealing with the aging out of federal workers. And the IRS really got dinged by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration in a recent report. They found basically that the IRS wasn't using enough of its incentives to recruit, retain, relocate employees. And their findings were pretty substantial in that they found that only 1,400 employees during a period between 2019 and fiscal 2022 actually received some kind of incentives. Now, these all totaled about $1.5 million, but it's really kind of a drop in the bucket when you look at all the number of people that the IRS has to deal with. And a lot of the money, frankly, went to to people during the COVID-19, during the pandemic, when they were just trying to get IRS employees back into the office. So again, this is a continuing challenge, as you know, with the federal government trying to retain federal workers, get younger workers into the federal government. Yeah, and they're also trying to get retirees back into the IRS. And this is something you see agencies do, not just the IRS, but often because they have the expertise that's needed. It must be strange coming back after retiring and after being away otherwise during the pandemic. I guess you'd go into your office and say, I wonder if that piece of gum is still on the same <laughs> bottom of the same table that was there before. Bringing back that institutional knowledge. But yeah, it is a kind of a strange topsy-turvy world for a lot of federal workers when you do come back from retirement. And now that we've seen, not unexpectedly, but the dramatic savagery in the way that Vladimir Putin has seemingly dispatched Prigozhin there over there in that plane shoot down, has that changed anyone's thinking, I guess because they're not in session, it's hard to tell, on the balking for funding of Ukraine, which could also complicate the budget process. I think it does have an effect. I mean, there's no question that everyone pretty much on the Hill, except for the sharpest critics of funding for Ukraine, know that Putin, this is the type of thing that he does. He basically kills his opponents. And it may have taken a while, but he saw that uprising a few months ago. And clearly some type of action here has been taken. And it's interesting that right as that happened, there was actually a bipartisan group of senators visiting with the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. An interesting trio of South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, very different politically, and then Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, who has worked with Senator Graham on a variety of issues. But this shows that there are people that are really serious about getting Ukraine more funding. The president has requested a total of $24 billion, and more than half of that would be specific to military assistance. I think you're going to continue to see that tug of war between the far right in the House, a lot of 
people very critical of sending money to Ukraine and the more institutional interests, if you will, in the Senate, as well as uh, more moderates in the House. And I think that they will eventually come up with more money with Ukraine. We'll just have to see whether or not it's going to be folded again into this big stopgap measure or if it can somehow be separated in a separate measure, which I think is probably unlikely. Well, one thing at least we know, there's one less SOB in Russia, but we still have the big one in place. (laughs) That's right. A lot of people forget that Prigozhin was actually mentioned in connection with the impeachment proceedings going way back to Ukraine and the meddling of Russians in the U.S. election. Uh, That involved allegedly Prigozhin, and he was technically a fugitive in connection with an investigation here in the U.S. Yeah, well, you know, it's like one big mafia over there in some ways. And listen, I wanted to ask you, too, that you had a discussion with someone who is often in the background, but not always, and that is the Senate chaplain, Barry Black. And he's celebrating 20 years on the job now. That's right. 20 consecutive years in the job. And he is such an interesting and wonderful person to speak with. I was lucky enough to speak with him up in his office complex, which, by the way, has a portal that looks out onto the National Mall. It's one of the most beautiful views from the U.S. Capitol. And I've been told that that is the only portal window that will actually open to the mall. So that's kind of an interesting thing. But as far as the Reverend Barry Black, he is interesting in some many ways. He has at times gotten attention for some of the prayers that he's had at the outset of the Senate. Of course, he comes in every morning and does that. Many years ago, it was when he was decrying the madness of a government shutdown. And he said, I asked him, how do you decide when to change up your prayer? And he said, in the instance of earlier this year, when there was a fatal shooting at the Nashville Church School, he said he was literally listening to WTOP, did not know about it. And in a moment's notice, he He changed his prayer entirely, and that's when he made a very attention-getting prayer, talking about essentially that prayers were not enough, that thoughts and prayers were not enough in an instance like this. And he says he kind of gets a, a signal. He calls it a text message from a higher power that he knows that he has to change things. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into 
the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, 
Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. 
The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.